As we began in Genesis, our walk through the Bible, there were two books I was a little bit concerned about tackling. One was Leviticus. Turns out I love Leviticus. Phenomenal book. Amazing in, uh, in its prophetic depth as well as uh, just being such a, an offering of truth. But then the book of Job was the second one. I thought, 42 chapters of this? Are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Suffering for that long? We're going to have to suffer through this? It is an amazing book. And the wisdom that, that comes through the Scriptures. And we need to remember something, too, as we're studying Job. And Peter said, all Scripture is inspired by God. Which means even the book of Job, whether it was written by Job himself, or as we see uh, later on, uh, a fifth character will come in. Elihu is a possibility. And we talked about, could be either one of those two men, but whoever wrote this book... Though we can't know for sure, whoever penned it, we know who wrote it. We know who the author is, and it's, it's our Lord Jesus, Spirit of Christ, speaking. And so there is such, such amazing uh, truth in here. And there are a lot of um, mistruths as well, as presented by Job's friends. And misapplications of the truth. In fact, what we see oftentimes is they're verbally sparring as the friends come along, and they, they'll say things that are true, but they misapply them. They don't handle the truth correctly. And we're called as believers to rightly handle the word of truth. Which is why I'm glad you're here tonight. Because it's part of the process as we learn to rightly handle the word of truth. Well, I'd like to pray one more time. uh, And just ask the Lord to bless our study and we'll get on into it. Lord Jesus, your word is truth. We believe this. It's why we have our Bibles open tonight. It's why we gather here. We don't gather here, Lord, to hear the wisdom of man, but to truly seek Your wisdom, Holy Spirit, in the Scriptures. And we invite You again to be our teacher, our rabbi, as it were, the one who leads us through and and disciples us. Lord, we would be Your disciples. We desire to follow after You. And even as we talked about Sunday, Lord, to enter into the fellowship of suffering, if in fact that will make us more like Jesus. As Jesus rose from the dead, so we want to know the power of His rising. But even as Jesus suffered in this life and on to the cross, we want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. We want to be like You, Jesus. And so, even timidly, we come before You and we just say, would You do what You need to do to form us after You? To make us more Christ-like in our walk. I pray tonight that you would do some shaping and forming of our hearts as we study through these next few chapters and you would bless the study of your word. Take us beyond study, Father, beyond intellect and into the place of the heart and the spirit where we can truly be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning of chapter 18, Bildad the traditionalist is back. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been studying through, and these three friends, we have Eliphaz, the first of the friends, and Eliphaz is the theologian, and uh, Bildad's more the traditionalist, and then Zophar, the third one, he's the legalist, and they they show this in the conversations and the questions they ask and the condemnations they make against Job, but Bildad is who we begin with tonight, who we're dealing with. It's a tag team approach to debate. You can almost see it like a wrestling match where you've got kind of the two-on-two thing if you've ever watched those very real wrestling matches on TV and how they'll tag off and the two guys would be a two-on-two situation. But here's a three-on-one situation 
Eliphaz tags off on Bildad. Now Bildad steps into the ring to have a second go at suffering Job. But I'm going to go ahead and warn you right now, you've heard it all before. Bildad will shed no new light on things. In fact, I was reminded of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 1.9. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And truly there is nothing new from Bildad as he opens his big his mouth. Just more of the same, same cliches, the same platitudes as Bildad places more of a value on traditional religion than he does on a trusted relationship. In fact, as he begins, he reminds me of the lyrics of a big hit song in the 1980s. Those of you who are big Missing Persons fans might remember what are words for when no one listens anymore. And that's where Bildad begins. He says in verse 1, Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts, as stupid in your eyes? How long, Bildad says, will you hunt for words? The thing is, as we go through this dialogue, all four friends, Job included, are hunting for words when they would most benefit by shutting up and listening up. Shutting up and listening up. Their dialogue illustrates a problem for us that that is our problem, and it has been since the beginning of creation, since the beginning of mankind, all the way to the end of mankind, and that's our inability to shut up and listen up. We have so many words, my wife can tell you. (laughs) And we're often hunting for words and pleading our case and not paying attention. Well, I want to show you something. Just so you see the scope of this problem, again, it, it starts in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And all the way through, mankind has had this inability just to be quiet and listen. And it continues all the way to the end. If you'll keep your finger there and just turn over to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. The Apostle John is writing this revelation given to him. And by the way, let me clarify something. I need to do this every now and then because on occasion I hear people refer to the book of Revelation as the book of Revelations. Plural. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. Singular. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the book. That's what it's about. It's not many different revelations of what's going to happen. You know, it's, It is the revelation, the picture of Jesus Himself, the ultimate final picture that we have in Scripture. Well, Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 5, tells us about the beast, the Antichrist. The Apostle John writes, There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell or literally tabernacle in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is, Antichrist, this beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Verse 9, and here's the key verse. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, this is interesting to me because the revelation of Jesus begins with Jesus telling the church to listen up. 
Seven churches, seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. And seven times Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Here the church is absent. And the church is not present because this verse says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. The Spirit at this point is not talking to the church. He's talking to mankind in general and just saying, Listen up! Even at the tail end of history here, in the midst of this tribulation period, the Lord is still saying, would you listen? Will you pay attention? Close your mouths and open your ears. God is still calling. Listen up. Listen up. His patience is truly amazing, is it not? Probably each one of us in our lives could testify as to how patient God has been with each of us. And far from the ancient days of Job, with Job and his friends debating the ways of God, our patient father has this to deal with today, intellectuals and learned in people who more and more are debating the very existence of God. D- did you know that atheism in America is gaining ground like never before in our country's history? As a viable option... The complete rejection of the existence of God. In 2004, a rather articulate atheist, a man by the name of Sam Harris, wrote a book. Maybe you've seen it. It was called The End of Faith. Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. His whole premise of this book was that religion is the problem on earth. Not Islam or or any particular, but Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all religion is the problem. And if we could do away with religion... (laughs) In fact, Harris's book is somewhat like... Uh, and maybe it's, it's the 2004 version of John Lennon's Imagine. You know, imagine there's no heaven. You know, above us only sky, no, uh, and below us no hell, below us. Just imagine what the world will be like without any religion whatsoever. And Harris writes in his book that the problem, the issue in our world today is religion. If we got rid of it and just brought in reason, we would all be better for it. Well, a lot of Christians were upset with that book. A lot lot of people wrote him letters. And so he wrote another book in 2008 entitled Letters to a Christian Nation, which is described as, quote, a measured refutation of the beliefs that form the core of fundamentalist Christianity. And it's flying off the shelves. It's called an elegant little book, 96 pages or so, refuting the core of your faith, my faith. Interesting. In 2006... Another atheist, self-described friendly atheist, a man by the name of Hemant Mehta. He put up an auction on eBay. Later it caught headlines in the newspapers about a man who was selling his soul on eBay. Well, truly what Hemant Mehta was doing was putting himself on eBay and saying, hey, to the highest bidder, I'm an atheist, but I'll go to whatever worship services you want me to go to for the highest bidder. A pastor at the time down in Portland, now he's up in Seattle by the name of um, Jim Henderson, Won the bid. $504. The price of him and made his soul. 504 bucks, And so Maida went to uh, church and, and uh, wrote about it in a book called I Sold My Soul on eBay. Now this pastor Jim Henderson that I mentioned, he wrote a book called Jim and, Jim and Casper Go to Church. Where he got an idea where he hired a, an atheist named Matt Casper. And he and Matt Casper, they went around all over the country visiting different flavors of churches. Matt Casper is an atheist and Jim Henderson is a pastor. And the two of them together wrote this book, or Henderson did, called Matt and Casper Go to Church. And it's a dialogue of the experience of this atheist coming into 
church services and, and how he reacted to all of it. Interesting things going on right now in our country. In 2009, buses began rolling out in London and now are in almost every major city in the world, including our own Seattle, Buses with the new Atheist Bus ad campaign, and maybe you've seen them, on the side of the bus, it's a black background with bright pink writing that says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. At Christmas time, these bus ads say, yes, Virginia, there is no God. And a more recent one is, praise Darwin, evolve beyond belief. And they're all over the world, riding on buses. I'd have trouble boarding one of those buses, honestly. You're looking out the window going... (laughs) Now, I realize I approach this whole thing from the perspective of faith. You do too. It's likely why you're here tonight, is you're here out of belief in Jesus. And when you hear things like the the growing number of atheists out there, and, and the growing voice of atheism, it probably is a bit disturbing to you, But when the age-old argument is offered, I I have to shake my head to it. What is the age-old argument? Well, Well, Sam Harris, in his book, he argues the number one reason why he cannot believe in God is a lack of evidence. Lack of evidence. There's just not enough proof out there. Now, when I hear that, my response is, really? Really? Is it a lack of evidence or are we just not paying attention? Are we just not listening? Jesus said in Matthew 13, 15, For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. Listen, I don't buy the lack of evidence argument. I, I, I can't accept it because the truth is audible if we are listening. The truth is available if we will look for it. I read a little bit of Harris's book. And one of the first arguments he makes is the difference between the Jesus of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament and how harsh the God of the Old Testament is and, and how, you know, how can you believe in that. And he doesn't know. He hasn't read it. He hasn't studied it. It's obvious in the way he's handling the question itself. I don't buy the lack of evidence issue. So what is the real issue? What is truly behind the rise in atheism? Psalm 2 verse 3 I think says it very well. Where the kings of earth are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. There being the Lord and His Messiah. Let's cast off the Lord. Let's put away anything that would bind us up that, that He offers us. The issue, gang, is not evidence. The issue is rebellion. And it has been from day one, and it will be to the very last day. It's rebellion in the heart of man that chooses not to accept God. Not a lack of evidence. Because if you truly want the evidence, it is all around us. It's everywhere. It's visible. It's tangible. It's audible. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's intellectual. It's everywhere. But here's the scary reality. Back to Bildad. Verse 4, he says, Oh, you who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. See, that's, that's Bildad, the traditionalist. Are you going to change things from the way they are? Are you going to move the rock that's been there for like forever? You can't do that, Job. Verse 5, he says, Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. 
and the flame of his fire gives no light. He's absolutely right. The light of the wicked goes out. Proverbs 24, verse 20 says, The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And what Bildad says here is absolutely true, but not as it applies to Job. And that's the problem. He's speaking a truth, but he's applying it to a man unfairly. This is not Job's problem. Wickedness, evil, unrighteousness, sin is not Job's problem. And so Bildad is misapplying this very true concept that the lamp of the wicked will be put out. He says in verse 6, The light in his tent is darkness, and his lamp goes out above him. He's saying, You're in the dark, Job. But Job's not. In fact, Job is probably the most enlightened person in this conversation. He says in verse 7, His vigorous stride is shortened, and his own scheme brings him down. For he is thrown into the net by his own feet, he steps on the webbing, a snare seizes him by the heel, and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground, and a trap for him on the path. Bildad is straying here now from truth to tradition. He talks about another problem that I have with traditionalist religion as opposed to just walking with Jesus. What Bildad is describing here is a concept of the threat of trickery and scheming. Traps laid. Snares set. Nooses hidden in the ground. And he's saying, and these things are going to catch the wicked. Listen. If you know Jesus, you know He's not a player. Jesus doesn't play games. This is not God. Bildad is implying that that's what God does. That He sneaks around and He lays traps for wicked people. So when they come around the corner, unbeknownst to them, boom, they're caught. They're ensnared. They're captured. But that's not the God of the Bible. Jesus is not out to ensnare the unsuspecting sinner. Oh, I understand Numbers 32-23, we've shared this verse many times, be sure your sin will find you out. And it will. I mean, that's as real a law as the law of physics. Your sin will find you out. But listen, it doesn't come as a trap. From the very beginning... God has been clear about truth. He has made it observable. He's made it understandable. He has made it evident. He's given us every opportunity. Jesus doesn't obscure the truth like a trapper in the woods. Now, Bildad's implying that's what's going on here is that God has laid all his traps and Job happened to be wicked and wander into them. But Jesus doesn't scheme to catch people off guard and punish them sadistically. Bildad's wrong. He continues on, however. He says in verse 11, All around terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. His strength is famished. His calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. You know, big words, but it's all hot air. Not much in the way of substance. He continues and says, verse 14, He is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. Brimstone! is scattered on his habitation. His roots are dried below and his branches cut off above. Memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name abroad. He's driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. 
Those in the west are appalled at his fate, and those in the east are seized with horror. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. This is what Bildad is saying is Job's problem. As these rounds continue, as this debate goes on, the further in we get, the more brutal these guys are to get right up in Job's face and say, the problem is your wickedness. It's you, man. You're bringing this all on yourself. He's saying, look at the facts, Job. Let the facts speak here. We know that this is the outcome of the wicked person. Therefore, you must be wicked. Wrong premise leading to wrong conclusion. Listen, you can have all the right facts, but if you start off with the wrong premise and apply those facts, you will end up with the wrong conclusion. You begin with the right premise. God is a God of mercy, God of love, God of grace. Once you apply all the facts, you will end up in the right place with the right premise. Bildad does not. Chapter 19, verse 1. So Job responded, How long? Will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me. Ten times? That's a Hebrew idiom. It means often. You guys have continually been insulting me. And you're not ashamed to wrong me, Job says. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. What does that mean? It means simply, it's my problem, not yours. What are you all upset about? Why are you guys getting all over me? If I have sinned, it's my fault, it's my problem. And you guys are acting like we're all... You're you're afraid of something here. He says in verse 5, If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know then, watch this, know then that God has wronged me and has closed His net around me. How so, Job? Job has no doubt this all has something to do with God. I mean, he has figured that out. God's doing something here. He can't figure out what. He's not sure why these sufferings, these pains are happening. But Job knows this has to do with God. There's something up here. But he's saying, if I have in fact sinned, some great sin here, God has wronged me by catching me in it. Do you understand what he's saying? It is not in the nature of God to catch you in your sin. God has wronged me. If I've sinned and I don't know, then it's not fair. He laid a trap for which I was not fairly warned or prepared. And you know what? Job's right. That's not God. Again, he's not out there like the hunter in the woods seeking to trap you, to to sneak up on you and go, Ha ha, I got you! Now sadly, many in the world think of God this way. They think that God is just waiting to nail them. He's watching. And you slip up. Oh, he's going to get you. That's not God. And Job says, if what you guys are saying is true, and I am suffering the consequences of my sin, that I don't even know what it is, it's not fair. God has wronged me. And the Lord doesn't do that. Gang, this book is covered from, from beginning to end. It is filled with warnings of hell and death, and sin, and what happens to those who are unrighteous and to those who are wicked throughout these pages. Why? It's so that we won't sin. It's so that we know ahead of time 
so that we can see clearly the path before us, so we know what's right and what's wrong, what trips us up and what doesn't. God has laid out the road map before us saying, look, there's a way to walk and I want you to walk in this way. You know who the way is. It's Jesus. And from beginning to end, God has done this. He's laid out the warnings. So that we wouldn't be caught unaware. Even in the very beginning when there was only one possible thing Adam and Eve could have done wrong, God warned them. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. Okay, bad news. Everything else, great. Enjoy. You know, have a party. Eat up. Don't eat that tree. One law. One rule. And of course, you know, they couldn't handle it. Because we're enticed and intrigued by those things. One rule. What happens if I break it? But the point is that God has warned us time and time again so that we would not sin. Keep your finger there and go over to the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. I want to show you something here. Ezekiel chapter 3. As evidenced by it being early on in the book of Ezekiel, this is part of Ezekiel's charge by God, what God is calling Ezekiel to do. And I think there's great application to you and to me as well. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord speaking to Ezekiel says the following, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Man, I have that highlighted and circled. Ezekiel's mission as a prophet from God is warn Israel. Warn them what's coming. Warn them to change their ways. Warn them from me. He goes on and says in verse 18, When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand, Ezekiel. (laughs) I can imagine Ezekiel going, Huh? That's my charge? So if I don't warn him, I get punished for it too? Exactly. Because you see, God is very serious that everybody have opportunity, that everybody have a clear and fair warning. God is completely fair. He goes on in verse 19, Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. He says again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die, since you have not warned him. He shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand, Ezekiel. This is a serious business here. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, He shall surely live because he took warning. And you have delivered yourself. Man, we could learn something from this charge gang. How about if we personalized the call to evangelism like that? How about if we look at it this way? And I'm not saying this is the way it is. Because the truth is, if you're saved by the blood of Jesus, whether you're a great evangelist or not, you're going to be saved. But what if we looked at it that way? That every person that I refused to share Jesus with that die in their sins, their sin is on my head. That their punishment then becomes my punishment. I wonder if that would motivate more people to talk about Jesus. The point is this. God is a warner against sin. People don't trip into it as Bildad is saying. You know, 
We see from your wicked acts that you're now caught. You're trapped. It's all snuck up on you. You didn't see it coming. Job says, that's not God. If that's God, it's not fair. If that's the case, God has wronged me. What did Jesus say? He, he, He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that? The guy had been there for 30 plus years. And Jesus walks up to him and goes, you've been here 30 years. Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? I says, yeah. So Jesus heals him. Tells us later on, John 5.14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. A lot of people have speculated maybe that's why the guy was lame in the first place. It had to do with some sin choice that he had made. But Jesus warns him, don't sin anymore. How about the woman caught in adultery? John chapter 8. That famous story about how the Pharisees drag her before Jesus. They throw her down in front of Him. They're accusing, they're condemning, and He says, let the most righteous among you go ahead and cast the first stone, and they walk away. We're told in John 8.10 that straightening up, Jesus said, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. Remember what Jesus said? I do not condemn you either. Now go your way and enjoy your adultery. (laughs) Go your way, he said, and sin no more. Why would you say that, Lord? Because I love her. Because I'm warning her. She has been rescued out of her sin. Don't go back and keep doing it. What's interesting to me is what Jesus says right after this. He turns to his apostles who are nearby. And he speaks these words. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what he had just given the woman. The light of life. He gave her the fair warning. Don't sin anymore. You've been saved. I don't condemn you. Don't go back to your old ways. Walk in the light, Jesus would say. John 8.31, he said, If you continue in my word, then you're disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That is the heart of God. That's the mentality. There's no trickery, no craftiness, no skullduggery with God. I just wanted to use that word. In fact, Jeff, word of the day for Papa Murphy's, skullduggery. Right? Write it down. Good word. God doesn't do that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 tells us the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Does that mean all are saved? No. It means salvation is available to everybody, to all men. And then Paul writes, Titus 2.12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. No tricks. No traps, no secrets, no games. Just, here's the truth. Here's the truth. If you will listen to my word, I'll instruct you in how to live. And you don't have to worry about being caught by your own sin. Psalm 85.11 tells us truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. God wants you to know. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know that you're saved. He wants you to know how much He loves you. That's the message of the Father. Now, Job goes on to paint several graphic pictures of his predicament. Verse 7. He says, Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there's no justice. He says, I'm like a criminal wrongly accused. 
Verse 8. He says, He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's put darkness on my paths. Picture of a traveler who's lost at night, can't get his way around a wall. He's stuck. Verse 9. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He said, I feel like a king has been dethroned here. Man, a wrongly accused criminal, a traveler lost at night, a king dethroned. Verse 10, He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. He's uprooted my hope like a tree. Picture of a tree, not just cut down, but pulled out by the roots. It says in verse 11, He's also kindled His anger against me and considered me as His enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me. I'm like a besieged enemy. I'm like someone who, I'm like a man on Masada, surrounded by the Roman army. I can't go anywhere. This is how Job is feeling. Very graphic pictures of his pain. Verse 13. He says, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, my intimate friends have forgotten me. He says, I'm a loner, I'm estranged. I got no one to turn to here. Those who live in my house, verse 15, and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I like that one. A lot of you guys might be able to say that same thing. My breath is offensive to my wife. Now that's bigger in scope, actually, than the way it reads. Scope, thank you. What he's saying, what he's saying here is he's saying, she doesn't want me. You see, for his wife to smell his breath, let let me be specific here, for his wife to smell his breath, she would have to be in close proximity, and she will not be. I've lost all intimacy with my wife. I can't even be close to her, he's saying. I am loathsome to my own brother's. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me. And those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. And I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. And that's where that saying comes from, by the way. Boy, I got out of there by the skin of my teeth. Job was the first one to say that. That's how he feels that he has escaped, if anything. What... What is he talking about? What's he doing here? And is Job just kind of wallowing in self-pity? Oh, oh, I'm like a loner. I'm a wrongly accused criminal. I'm a traveler lost at night. Woe is me. That's not what's going on. Remember, Job is in this dialogue with these three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Three men who came from long distances to be with him. Obviously, they're important to each other. And obviously, the Lord feels this way because as we talked about before at the end of the book, God seeks the restoration of these friends. But Job is pouring out his heart to his friends, his illustration of his desperation. These pictures of his predicament are presented, I think, in hopes of drawing some compassion out of his friends. Of getting them to to realize what a predicament he's in, how painful this is. He's seeking some compassion. In fact, he's begging for it. Watch the very next verse. Pity me! Pity me, oh my friends. Come on, guys. You can hear him speaking these words through tears if there are any tears left. Please, 
At least feel sorry for me. Pity me. The hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Is my pain not bad enough that you guys are attacking me like this? You know, what is it about humanity that, that when someone is, is down and out, we kick them? What is it about us when someone is in the throes of, of their pain that we would actually go on the attack as though we were predators going after a wounded animal? Now, we talked about this on Sunday. But the only way we can truly learn to comfort in the way that Jesus comforts is to suffer in the way Jesus suffered. Job's friends did not get his suffering. They did not understand. They'd never been through something like this individually themselves. So they're having trouble understanding, relating to him. They don't get it. We have to go through the suffering ourselves to truly understand And by the way, let me remind you, suffering will do one of a few things to you. Depending on where you're coming from, when suffering hits, when sorrow hits, it can cause caustic bitterness. Uh, You've seen it, perhaps you've felt it. Suffering can cause caustic bitterness. And someone who ends up, because of their suffering, going around just spewing hatred. They just hate all people. You know, my life stinks, I'm going to make your life stink too. It's just the way it is. It's all bad. Suffering can cause that. Suffering can cause a conquered self-centeredness. The woe is me attitude. Someone who just folds up and quits. I'm the victim. It's all so hard. Life's so hard. And they're just... They're down in the dumps all the time. Or suffering can cause Christ-like tenderness. What's the difference between the three? It all depends on your relationship with Jesus. Man, if you know the tenderness of Christ, if you know the grace of Christ, if you understand how passionate He is for you, how much He loves you, then even when you go through the worst of suffering, it's not going to bring out bitterness. It's not going to bring out self-pity. It's going to bring out a tenderness that is like the tenderness of Jesus if you're walking in relationship with Him. And that's how you're able to comfort with the comforts with which you yourself have been comforted by Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, Paul says. How you respond to suffering. What suffering accomplishes in you depends on how you see Him. Now watch this. Wonderfully, in his desperation, probably his greatest moment of despair here, Job turns to Jesus. Watch this. He says in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written! Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. (laughs) They are. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see And not another. Gang, desperation truly does bring about revelation. I shall see God, Job cries out. I know my Redeemer lives, he says. At the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Man, he says these words, and I don't know about you, but my heart starts to pump. I start to get excited because I can relate. 
I will see my God. At the last, I know He's going to stand on the earth. My eyes will see my Redeemer. I'm convinced of this. I know this to be true. Job is pouring out. I mean, these are, these are amazing words of faith. The Gospels haven't even been written. Hey, the Bible hadn't even been written yet. I mean, if this is where we think it is timeline-wise, timeline-wise, 4,000 years ago, then Job is saying something that hasn't been written, that hasn't even been inferred, that hasn't even been prophesied yet. He is saying, I know I have a Redeemer. I know He's coming back. I know I'm going to see Him, and I know His feet are going to stand on this earth. And in my flesh, Job says, I will see God. And we have the whole Bible. And yet how often do you have someone stand up and make such a proclamation of faith as that? Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1 wrote, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Oh man, I pray for that. Especially when the name of God or, or the church or Christianity is maligned in, in the media, I just sit there and I think, I cannot wait till he shows up. Man, CNN, cover that. Wait till we see him. Micah 1 3. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Oh, bring it on, Lord. Zechariah 14.4 In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Job says at the last He will take His stand on the earth. I read these prophecies and I get all excited. I I have trouble sitting down. I was in my office looking up these verses and typing it and going yes! Yes! You know, I just want to stand up and walk around my office for a minute because like, yes, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. I can't wait to see Him for myself. I can't wait until that day. And I can guarantee when that day comes, there won't be any buses advertising there's probably no God. <laughs> I can't wait to see what all these prophets proclaim. From the earliest days forward, including Job himself. Gang, you just read a prophecy by the Spirit of God penned in this book 4,000 years ago before Moses came along. Before the law. Before the Hebrew Scriptures were written. Before Jesus came, a prophecy. And we're going to look at more of these Sunday morning. I don't want to... I don't want to go too far into that right now because we will take a longer look at this section of verses. But Jesus Himself, at the tail end of things, being quoted ahead of time, what He will say, what He is saying to John, Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and My reward is with Me to render to every man according to what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I can't wait. And there is more here. 
which we're going to have to wait for until Sunday. We'll come back and look at together. Now at this point, Job probably gets physically ill. I, I, I imagine him, I can see him saying, I know my Redeemer lives, and he's kind of standing up, and, and yet the quality of his life is so pathetic, so dismal, that he drops back down. Verse 27 at the end, he says, My, my heart faints within me. Literally, he says, my kidneys fail in my loins, which may mean he is incontinent here. Which is sad. It may mean he's having trouble even keeping anything in at this point. Whatever's going on, Job has to settle down. Verse 28, he says, If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? Job says, then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. Guys, Job says, if you're going to judge me for something unseen like this, watch out. If this is what you're looking for, be careful. If that's how you see God, (laughs) you think I'm in bad shape, the sword of judgment is coming around. And Jesus said, don't judge so that you will not be judged. It's very simple. Don't presume to judge for God because your own judgment will be on your own head. Jesus says, the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Tag. Zophar's back in the ring. Chapter 20. Good news, this is the last time we hear from Job from Zophar. He says, Therefore, Zophar the Naamathite answered, Therefore, my disquiet. Anyone who starts a sentence with therefore. What's going on with this guy? Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. The spirit of my understanding. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up. This guy is a puffy man. Verse 4. Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, And the joy of the godless momentary, though his loftiness reaches the heavens, his head touches the clouds. He says he perishes forever like his refuse. Nice. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream. They cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which which saw him sees him no longer, and his place no longer beholds him. His sons, Zophar says, favor the poor, or literally they seek the poor, because they themselves are so impoverished, they're seeking the poor, they're beggars. And his hands give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. All right, here comes Zophar, in all his puffiness, declaring three outcomes for wicked people. The first of which he's already declared, life is short for the wicked. If you're wicked, life is short. Has that been your experience? So far, you're wrong. Thanks for playing. I wonder, what would Zophar say about Jim Elliott? 
or Nate Saint, those missionaries, a team of five who went down to the Alca Indians in Ecuador to try and bring the gospel to them and all five were murdered by the Alcas. Their wives then followed up, by the way, and the Alcas came to Christ. Amazing story. Through Gates of Splendor. Pick it up and read the book. It's amazing. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, these men died in their early 20s. Were they wicked? Do the wicked die young? It was Jim Elliott who wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Can you imagine? Buy it through Gates of Splendor and read it because you get a lot of journal excerpts from Jim Elliott that are absolutely astounding that a guy in his 20s would have the spiritual depth and insight and wisdom that Jim Elliott had. It's astounding. How would Zophar judge Eric Little? He's more famous in God's eyes, not for running the race in the Olympics and not for being the star of Chariots of Fire. But Eric Little, who died in an an internment camp during World War II as a missionary to China at the age of 43. Is it only the wicked who die young? What would Zophar say about Jesus, who died at the age of 33? The wicked! They die young! Billy Joel was probably more right than Zophar when he said only the good die young. Truth is, only the Lord knows the days of man. We all deserve death as the outcome of our sin, but our death comes at different times. We'll understand it better, perhaps in the future. But there's no standing rule that says wicked people die young. If that were the case, why is you Hefner still around? I mean, it's kind of disgusting. It's bad enough when he was a young playboy, now he's an old playboy. Ooh. <laughs> Zophar goes on and says, Life is short for the wicked. He says, Pleasure is passing for the wicked. Verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in its mouth, yet his food in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. He swallows riches, but will vomit them up. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue slays him. He does not look at the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. Zophar says that pleasure is like an M&M under the tongue. You ever done that? You, know, you take the M&M, you stick it in your mouth, no one knows you've got it. You just got this little secret pleasure going on in, in your mouth. Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> Zophar says pleasure's like that. It's there. It tastes good. It's sweet. But it's almost like someone giving you... Have you, you seen those... You get them like at those joke stores or magician stores, whatever. But it's like, it's like the gum or the candy that they eat it. But then once it goes down and immediately it's like a... Oh, X-lax kind of thing. That's what he's talking about. Pleasure goes in sweet, but it comes out very fast. It's gone. It's over with. It doesn't last. It is passing. It's like a tasty, garlicky... Italian meal, oh, I love garlic in Italian food until two hours later. I, just, I love it when I'm having it, you know, but it passes very quickly, painfully. Sorry. <laughs> and what Zophar says is, is true enough, but it's not just true for the wicked. It is true for all of us, gang. Pleasure is a passing thing for everybody. Just because you happen to be godly or righteous in your approach to life does not mean the pleasure just goes on and on and on. It it ends. 
I mean, isn't that your experience? Pleasure's great, it's fun, but it's over like that. It's the hardest thing for my kids to understand and learn, especially my younger ones. Naomi is absolutely hysterical. We'll take her to a friend's house. She'll be excited about it all morning long. Can't wait to get there. Gets there. She jumps out of the car, runs over. She's playing. Oh, she's the happiest kid in the world until we come to pick her up. And then the walk to the car is like she's on death row. You know? And the ride home, she's just bummed. Like, Naomi, did you have fun? Yes. What's wrong? It's over. You know? And that's the way pleasure is. Hey, so far, you're right. But it's not just that way for wicked people. It's that way for everybody. Proverbs 21.17 says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. Go pursue it because it's a passing thing. It's not going to last anyway. And then he says, number three, not only is life short for the wicked, according to Zophar, pleasure is passing for the wicked, wealth quickly withers for the wicked. Another one that I would have to say, eh. here's what he says, verse 18. He returns what he has attained and cannot swallow it. As to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has seized a house which he has built because he knew no quiet within him. He does not retain anything he desires. Nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore, his prosperity does not endure. In the fullness of his plenty, he will be cramped. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. Oh, lofty Zophorian words of this puppy man of such great wisdom. And listen, don't miss this. Zophar is really getting cruel here. In fact, he's getting very specific. What he's implying here, as he's talking about the wicked in the third person, but it's really Job he's talking about. What Zophar is implying is that Job is probably being punished for some kind of exploitation of the poor. As if Job were one of the, you know, the Wall Street, evil Wall Street bankers who caused our recession recently. Oh yeah, it was all their fault. (laughs) They did it. Government had nothing to do with it. The people's greed had nothing to do with it. It was all the Wall Street, those big evil rich guys. Zophar is saying, Job, you're like that. Perhaps the way you made your riches was off ripping off the poor, and that's why you're being punished right now. We got open up the books. Come on, man. That's where Zophar is going. Wealth quickly withers for the wicked. Let me make a point about wealth quickly. Wealth is not a sign of greed and abuse. Please hear that. Wealth is not a sign of evil and wickedness. Wealth may very well be a sign of blessing. It may very well be that the Lord looks at someone and says, I just, I just want to give this to you. Well, where do you get that from, Pastor? Well, I, I get it from the Bible. Proverbs 3.9 that says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Why would God bless you? So that you can bless others. And if you happen to be well off in this life, hey, praise God and bless somebody with it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Why? Paul says, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. He's not talking about how you vote. You will be enriched for liberality. That is generosity. Let me tell you something. We own outright the property on Troxel because God blessed somebody. He blessed our fellowship as well. 
But He blessed in such a way that someone was able to give liberally and we were able, though we had the money in the bank and, and we had, you remember the story, I told you, we had made the decision, we're going we're gonna to empty the bank account and just buy the property outright. The day after we had made that decision in a shepherd's meeting, the day after we got the phone call, hey, I'd like to just, I'd like to just buy that and let, you know, let the church have it. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which Paul says is producing for us thanksgiving to God. See, it's not about what you have, it's about what you do with what you have. And that's the issue of, of wealth. Well, so far, he's continuing on. He, he, his last point here is that dr- death is dreadful for the wicked. Death is dreadful for the wicked, verse 23. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he's eating. How did Job's kids die? Remember, they were eating together when the roof fell in. So it's another dig at Job's family. He may flee the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. It's drawn forth and comes out of his back. Even the glittering point from his gall. He's talking about a guy who's just got a wicked guy who's gotten skewered by the arrow of God's wrath. Saying this is what happens to, to wealthy or, or to wicked, sorry, to wicked people. Complete Oh, he says terrors come upon him. That's a favorite theme of Eliphaz so far and, and Bildad all three. They love to say terrors. Come upon him. See, you're terrified, Job. That's because you're wicked. (laughs) Terrors come upon him. Complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasures. An unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of his anger. This is the wicked man's portion from God. Even the heritage decreed to him by God, death is dreadful for the wicked. So, so far, if death is particularly painful or decidedly dreadful, what you're saying is then you must be wicked. And your friend here who's dying in front of you, what you're saying is he's got to be wicked. Because wicked people have horrible deaths, is is what he's saying. Let me ask you this again. Has that been your experience in the world? Do wicked people always have horrible deaths? I wonder again what Zophar would have said about the cross of Jesus Christ. The most horrible death ever experienced on planet Earth. Would Zophar say, Wicked. By his legalistic standard of measure, the cross of Christ is proof of the wickedness of Christ Jesus. Now, now you and I know there was wickedness on Christ because He took all of our sin on Him. But Christ, prior to the cross, lived, you know, an absolutely pure, absolutely sinless life. And yet, if Zophar is judging, he would have to say, ah, there's got to be something here. There's got to be some wickedness here. Is Zophar 100% wrong? He's wrong on several points. He's right on a few He's not 100% wrong with information, but like Bildad, like Eliphaz, he's 110% wrong with application. Because he applies all these things, all of his windy knowledge, he applies to Job's circumstantial pain as proof of Job's wickedness. Well, let me just say this. We're going we're gonna, to uh, get through chapter 21 quickly here. But the problem that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz have 
is they're doing the same thing to Job that they do to God. What's that? They talk about him. They don't talk to him. They talk about God. They will never talk to God. You never hear any of these three guys praying directly or saying anything directly to God. In the same way, they're dancing around Job. They're judging by implication. Well, the wicked man's like this. You get what we're saying? The wicked man is, you know. They're not up front. They're not walking in the light with their friend. They're hammering away, again, in the third person, making implications, and it's completely cowardly. They won't even face their friend head on and just say, look, buddy, what we need to talk about this. I mention that because I think there's far too much of that in the church today. Talking about someone instead of talking to someone. Going around the corner to deal with an issue rather than just going straight to the person face to face and going, look, let's talk about this. And going with an attitude of humility that says, you know, I might be wrong. But here's what I'm seeing, brother. Here's what I'm seeing, sister. Can, can, we, can we talk about this? Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. He doesn't say team up with three and go hammer away in the third person. Like these three friends are doing. He says, no, you, you go to your brother one-on-one. And you show him what the problem is. And you, ask, you dialogue about that. You, you, you go out of love and compassion. You don't talk about him to someone else. You walk in the light. Walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's how you maintain a fellowship. That's how you grow in fellowship is you walk it out in the light. You're completely upfront and honest and you don't dance around the truth with anybody. And if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another, 1 John 1, 7, and the blood of His Son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is the God standard for all relationships. Walking in the light as opposed to scurrying around the corners. Well, Job replies as we round out round two. Then Job answered. First word out of his mouth. It's what we started with tonight. Listen. Listen. Listen carefully to my speech. Let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. Then after I have spoken, you may mock. (laughs) That's funny. Listen while I speak, and if you need to mock later, okay. He's calling out the age-old problem. Nobody's listening here. Verse 4, as for me, my complaint is to man. He said, is my complaint. Is my complaint to man? Is my complaint to or, or against Literally there, man. And why should I not be impatient? Look at me. He gets their attention, I think. And he says, be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. And even when I remember, I am disturbed and horror takes hold of my flesh. Listen, it's hard to get in the English. But what Job is saying here, what he's getting across is, look at me, guys. Prepare to be shocked. I'm going to say something that will shock you. And it even makes me shudder, but i, I got to say it. And Job begins to take apart Zophar's declarations. Verse 7, he says, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? Remember Zophar said, the wicked die young. Uh-uh. Job says, not from my perspective, not what I've seen. 
Their descendants are established with them in their sight. Their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. And the rod of God is not on them. He's saying, the wicked live long and prosper. I mean, they're... That's, that's what it is for the wicked. They continue on. It's not what you're saying so far. His ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock. And their children skip about. Job says they, they sing to the timbrel and harp. And rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity. And suddenly, not painfully, suddenly they go down to Sheol. So far, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. The wicked live long, Job says. The wicked have lasting pleasure, Job says. The wicked die lickety-split. Quickly. Not in long, drawn-out pain. Job is speaking a truth that literally... I mean, this, this guts the legalism of Zophar. It tears into the traditionalism of Bildad. It, it, it pulls apart the theology of Eliphaz. Everything you guys are basing your judgment on is wrong, Job says. Well, how did Job come to this perspective? Probably from his seat on the ground. You know, it said that when a man gets to the bottom of the pit, there's only one place he can look, and that's up. Job's at the bottom of the pit. And he's looking up, and for the first time, he's seeing reality for what it is. And he goes on now to describe, here's the attitude, watch this, it's interesting, to describe the attitude of wickedness toward God. Verse 14 he says, They say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? You know what Job just did? He said wickedness is not just a behavioral thing. Wickedness is based on whether or not you are willing to be in relationship with God. That's wickedness. According to Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, wickedness is what you do. Job says, "Uh uh-uh. It's far more than what you do. It's who you are in your relationship to God. If you want nothing to do with God, that's wickedness. You can be the best person in the world, the really good person, but if you have rejected God outright, Job says, that's wickedness. That's what true wickedness looks like. Sam Harris, Hemant Maida, Matt Casper, avowed atheists of the world. The Bible described the rebellious attitude of atheism toward God over 4,000 years ago. And we continue to see it play out before us. It's not lack of information, gang. It is a work of rebellion. That's all it is. You can... Throw out all kinds of intellectual arguments you want, but the bottom line is it comes down to rebellion. That's the problem. Verse 16. Job says, Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. He's saying, I haven't, I'm not connected with this kind of thinking. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does their calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in His anger? Are they a straw before the wind? And like chaff, which the storm carries away, Job's saying, no. No, they're getting away with it all around us. Wickedness flourishes. The unrighteous man does fine for himself, lives long, dies easy. 
enjoys many pleasures. He says, verse 19, You say God stores away a man's iniquity for his sons. Let God repay him so he may know it. Let his own eyes see his decay. Let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is cut off? He's saying a truly wicked man. He doesn't care what happens to his kids. He's just getting all he can for himself. Can anyone teach God knowledge in that He judges those on high? Let me ask you, have you ever felt this way? What Job is expressing here is a, it's a sorrowful frustration, but it's absolutely true that the wicked get away with everything. You ever just turned off the news and gone, ah, I'm just tired of what I'm seeing here. The lies. The deception. The brutality of it all. You get tired of seeing it in the world around. You get fed up. I'm trying to do the right thing. Some intellectual guy writes a book undermining the very precious faith that you hold dear and he goes out and he's making a huge profit on it. And he's doing fine. And I think I wish the Lord would just return and show truth. And He will. I know my Redeemer lives. He will. Verse 22 again, Can anyone teach God knowledge in that He judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat, and the marrow of his bones is moist, while another dies with a bitter soul, never even tasting anything good. He's saying young people die, never having experienced life. And old people die wicked and dumb and fat and happy. Everything's great for them. He's saying it's completely opposite what you guys are saying. The reality of the world around us is much darker than this legalistic religious picture you're trying to paint. Together they lie down in the dust and worms cover them. Good point, Job. Good, bad, and ugly. Everyone dies. Some die young, some die old, some die wealthy, some die poor. Everybody dies. They all go down to the dirt. It's the way it is. Behold, 27, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman? Where is the tent, the dwelling places of the wicked? Have you not asked wayfaring men? And do you not recognize their witness? What he's saying is, ask the man on the street for his take. You know, go ahead and ask around. What what, what is really going on here? Let's deal with reality for a moment. And then he says a great truth in verse 30, For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of judgment. Peter quotes that, 2 Peter 2.9. The wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. Who will confront him with his actions? Who will repay him for what he has done? I mean, who, really, who's going to go head to head with the wicked man who's got it all going on? Who's going to call him on it? While he's carried away to the grave, men will keep watch over his tomb. The clods of the valley will gently cover him. Moreover, all men will follow after him while countless ones go before. I think of the think of the funeral procession for Michael Jackson. Oh, you're calling Michael Jackson a wicked man? You're being rather judgmental. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, hey, wealthy guy goes down. It's all it's beautiful, falderall. That's the reality of the world, is it not? He says in verse 34, How then will you vainly comfort me? For your answers remain full of 
falsehood, literally full of faithlessness. What Job's saying is your answers are not faithful to the truth. How can you comfort me when you don't even know what's going on in the world round about? The wicked die young? (laughs) Pleasure passes, wealth withers, death is dreadful for them? I don't think so, Job says. So we end round two. Ding! In favor of Job. He wins. He's right. Listen, two quick things to note as we finish up. Because I don't want you to leave, leave you in the place where Job is right now, which is just kind of like, wow, bummer. <laughs> Here's the truth. Job 21.30. Again, the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. No one's getting away with anything. That's the truth we need to recognize. No one's getting away with anything. Why is it that the day of judgment comes at the very end of all things? Because God has allowed the entire course of history to offer warning and truth. And when it's all said and done, when having been presented with the truth our entire lives and and the entire history of man, no one's getting away with anything. No secret sins, nothing hidden that won't be revealed. The Hebrew writer says, everything will be laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. No one's getting away with anything. But the second thing to note, back in chapter 19, verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. No one's getting away with anything, but my salvation is secure. My Redeemer is coming. My redemption has been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ, and I know I'm saved. Now now listen, if we know this to be true, If we understand, no one's getting away with anything, and and we have a sure salvation. If we understand that Jesus is both the great Savior and the great Judge, how should we live? What do we do with this information? My encouragement to you is that we live with the voice of the disciple. As we talked about Sunday, Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the disciples or the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Now that's Jesus talking, the Spirit of Christ, through Isaiah. But the application is for us to live as a disciple that we might sustain a weary one with a word. That our lives not be about judgment. That's God's position. We've been removed from that game. That's not our role, not our place. Our place is to bring comfort to a comfortless world. To bring the truth of Jesus into the marketplace of wickedness. Not judging as we go, but loving as we go. It's it's the Lord's call to Ezekiel. Man, be a watchman for Israel. Be one who brings warning, not out of judgmentalism, but out of love. Warn the world about us. Look, this is the truth. And I love you too much not to tell you what's going on. We have a role to play and a job to do if we're willing to accept it. Confront corruption with compassion. Warn the wicked along the way, all the while knowing your Redeemer lives. Let me put it this way. After all that I've said about Sam Harris and Matt Casper and Hemant Mehta and other atheists in the world, the atheist is not my enemy. He's not your enemy. 
I'm actually going to pick up Sam Harris's book, Letters to a Christian Nation, mainly because I want to talk to you about it and refute it. But he's not my enemy. How could that Pastor Jim Henderson travel with Matt Casper, an atheist, all over just getting information and not tell him how sinful and wrong he is? Well, because Casper is not Jim Henderson's enemy. The way I read it in Scripture, we have one enemy. Satan. And as far as the rest of humanity goes, the atheist out there, the person who is completely anti my faith, is not my enemy. He's a lost soul. He's someone who needs Jesus as desperately as I need Jesus. I was watching last night, uh, I'll I'll admit it, American Idol. And I I was processing, because I've been studying this stuff through the week. And I... As I watched, Ellen DeGeneres is on there, and I, I don't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, good feelings for Ellen DeGeneres and, and her, uh, you know, the whole lesbian thing and how she has really been a, a an example, a poor example for that in our world. And, and so, but I'm watching it. I'm, I'm thinking about this processing. The atheist is not my enemy, and he's not the threat to my faith. And, and how do I feel about those who, who set themselves against me and, and truly are set against God? And I'm watching Ellen. And it happened to be the episode, if you've ever seen American Idol, where all the singers are coming in one at a time, and the judging panel is telling them whether or not they made it. I was stunned at how compassionate Ellen DeGeneres was. It kind of bothered me. She's a lesbian. How can she be so nice? <laughs> and and something God said something to me as I'm watching this. You know what? Ellen's out there. Sam Harris is out there. All these people. They're just sinners who need Jesus. She, she's a nice person. She's messed up. She's messed up, but she could show compassion just like anybody. I've seen Christians show less compassion than she showed on the show last night. I know it's all for TV and probably the whole thing was an act, but still. I I was really impressed as the judges are trying to tell them the way that you could tell when some of these kids who didn't make it are crying and walking off. You could see the look on her face, like how painful this was for her, and I thought, wow. She's a human being too. And I point that out for this reason, gang. We dehumanize non-Christians and we don't have any place to do it. Jesus didn't. He didn't go around looking at people and saying, well, if you believe in me, then you're all right. You don't. Well, you're a pig. No. I came to seek and save the lost, he said. Hey, the, the healthy don't need a physician. The sick do. And I think we've got to start shifting our attitude. Maybe you're already there and I'm just catching up, but we've got to shift our attitude toward lost people instead of sitting in the seat of judgment, which we are not called to. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, okay, that's His business. I've been removed. That job is no longer mine. My role is to show compassion, even in the most corrupt of places, to speak the truth that Jesus loves the filthiest of sinners and is hoping that the filthiest of sinners will repent, will come to faith in Him. That's how I think we're supposed to live. Because the day that Job referred to 4,000 years ago as at the last, my friends, is imminently near. 
We have very little time. Let's love the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, again, I ask, Lord, not that You fill our heads with knowledge, but our hearts with compassion. That, Lord, You would alter our perspective. And I I thank You, Father, for shaking me up a little bit this week. Maybe taking a little more of the edge off of my tendency to judge. Father, we, we need to be compassionate because You, Father, have been compassionate to us. And Lord, I just ask that You will work in each of our lives individually tonight, all of us who have shared this together. I pray You'll work in the life of this fellowship, that we will continue to grow as a compassionate people. I pray, Father, You will pour out this message of grace in Your church. As the days are waning and wickedness is on the rise and people are rejecting, Lord, I fear people are rejecting You often because we misrepresent You. And so I pray that You will make us a people who show love first and offer all the answers and truly would have a heart and a care for those who are lost rather than disgust. Father, thank You for the book of Job. Thank You for our time this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.